Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to the 40th episode of the School of Wellbeing. Can you believe it? 40 episodes. Thank you for being a part of this wonderful adventure. It makes my heart sing to know that these weekly conversations are creating a positive ripple effect in so many homes and classrooms around the world. In the last few weeks, we've had a lot of new listeners. And if you're new to the podcast and would like to know why I started it, listen to episode one, where I share my personal story and my hopes for the future of wellbeing education in schools and the wider community. Creating this podcast has been worth the effort. Each week, I am blown away by the generosity of the guests and their willingness to share their knowledge and experiences so we can all learn, grow and thrive together. An unexpected surprise and delight of hosting the podcast is being sent lots of books, lots and lots of books. My office is starting to look more like a bookshop. So in celebration of the 40th episode, I am introducing a monthly book giveaway. So if you're a subscriber on my Thought of the Week email, look out for details on the first book that I'll be giving away. On with today's episode, I couldn't think of a better guest to celebrate the big 4-0 than the queen of common sense, Maggie Dent. Maggie has become one of Australia's favourite parenting authors and educators. She has a particular interest in the early years, adolescence and resilience and is the undisputed boy champion. Maggie is the author of nine books and is the host of the popular ABC podcast, Parental as Anything. Maggie's latest book and the book that we'll be discussing today is Girlhood, Raising Our Young Girls to Be Healthy, Happy and Heard. In this conversation, we will discuss what our young girls need to thrive, the importance of play, fun and laughter, how micro moments of connection can bolster our relationships and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Maggie Dent. Maggie, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Oh, hello, Meg. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled that you are here and I'm sure so many listeners feel like, ah, it's Maggie. I can relax. I can take a deep breath. She understands. She gets it. So from everybody that's listening and who knows your work, thank you for what you do because you make us all feel okay with ourselves. (laughs) Is that just me because I own all my own muck-ups and everyone feels, well, I didn't leave my son at the pool. I'm way ahead of her. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that's what people are yearning for. People are yearning for people who are honest to share that it's such a mess. It's so hard. You know, I've got a five and three-year-old and just last night we got to swimming lessons early and I was like, oh, I'm doing so well. We're early. This is fantastic. This never happens. And then I look in the swimming bag, no bathers. Like, <laughs> no bathers like oh here I am early got no bathers and then I'm getting in a bit of a flap so then you're in the foyer looking at the speedos that cost $40 each can't find the size end up buying stuff that doesn't properly fit just to get into the swimming lessons like so you have these moments where you're winning and you have these moments where you're just like ah oh, I just got to roll with it <laughs> I can still remember as a young mum with a couple of like you know, under four, so getting ready to go to play group, you know, which fortune was made up of mainly my girlfriends who were equally as useless. We were all teachers. And, um, you know, and I've probably got a little one that's, you know, a baby, so I've got to work out, and I've, yeah, if I breastfeed now I'll be able to get, yeah, there might be a poo, so it allows it. You know how you come back from the time you want to leave to get, and then all of a sudden you looked up and, and the toddler's just losing it, right? 
because it didn't sleep very well. And yet, yet the four-year-old, well, oh, it's just come in from outside covered in mud, you know, and there were days you just got, it's not working today, I'm just going to put the kettle on and bunker down. This isn't one of those days. Not one of those days. So, Maggie, can you tell me your story? How have you become our queen of common sense? Oh, it's so funny, you know, Meg, because um, I have no idea really. It was kind of an accidental journey um, other than, you know, I, I was high school teaching and then when I went back because I was a much better uh, teacher after I'd had a few children, um, I noticed that, you know, I still had that knack that kids would come to me or I'd recognise the kids that needed some sort of support. So I thought, I'd, you know, anyone can teach them how to write paragraphs. Oh, maybe not. But anyway, I decided that I'll go and do a diploma in counselling and therapy and I'll step out and just counsel full time because I also knew how vulnerable young people are and that there is such a thing as, you know, suicides that are by impulse, let alone the ones when they're really struggling. So, And then when I was working with the troubled teens and kids, of course, there's always a family. And so when the family are able to come on board in the transformation that we're aiming for, everything gets better. And then parents asked me to run a little seminar. That's now um, 24 years ago. And then I um, I wrote a book once and that kind of made sense. And so I thought, well, I might write some more now. So we're up to number nine or ten. And then, you know, the teacher in me missed classrooms so I made them classrooms of parents instead. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely love that and I'm looking forward to talking about Girlhood, your latest book because as I was reading this book I noticed it was a little bit different to your previous books and it was a real invitation to get to know ourselves as adults and caregivers and to almost raise ourselves as we're raising and looking after our young people. Oh, Meg, it took. I had no idea the journey it was going to take me on because obviously I am female. I was a girl, which is pretty good. Um, I'd also taught co ed, so I was used to, you know, working with girls. And in my counseling, 75% would have been girls. So I kind of knew a bit about it, but I just did it out of curiosity um, because as I was observing my beautiful little granddaughters, they were just blowing my head apart. And I thought, um, there is a big difference. Um, I wonder why, because, of course, I've got that kind of curious mind. But And so I just thought I'd do the research, listen to the survey, and it will be easy. But, of course, it took me on a, on a big journey back into my own childhood and my girlhood. And, um, and I felt, no, this is time that if I can share just how intensely emotional I get when I relive an experience, it will make sense for those who are raising girls to know that this emotional world is complex and it's intense and it's it can be tricky to um, navigate for us as parents, let alone for our girls. It can be so tricky. So what do you think has changed over the years for our girls? Well, I think we've sped everything up is the first thing. You know, I'm, I'm deeply passionate about children uh, spending hours and hours in autonomous play, preferably outside where they get filthy and fall out of trees with other children, you know, which is kind of how Mother Nature intended children to learn social and emotional skills. We don't, shouldn't need a, a course in, the, you know, primary school because all those moments of bumps and bruises and older children looking after younger children, um, that's actually how they pick a lot of it up kind of by copying and modelling. Um, the second thing I think... Um, 
we have more parents working more. So there is more of an issue around who cares for our children when we are unable to, what's the quality of that care. And I think it's a digital world. It wasn't something I noticed as much when I was still with mine. And that was probably about 13, 14, the oldest one before we got a computer. And that's the comparison and the ability for us to compare and despair as mothers, not just watching the pictures that other mummies who appear to have more control. I think what happens is that mums were able to look at images of perfectly dressed children or immaculate eyebrows on other women and feel they were failing, you know, because that's we're wired still to do this kind of competition bit. But I think that just got blown out the water. And then on top of that, there is too much information. And I, you know, I'm contributing to that and I apologise deeply. But if you can't understand why your daughter's having a meltdown um, over something like that. You'll go and search, possibly as you're trying to fall asleep. And, you know, so much of it is developmentally normal and that's exactly what they're meant to do. You're also not a lousy parent and also this has just always been something they do at that age, whereas I think people go to look for the silver bullet that's going to mean they'll never have another one (laughs) And I think sometimes that's unrealistic. And you know what I think's led to some of that, Meg, and that is parenting magazines weren't a thing, right, when I was at home as an at-home mum for about seven years. And then when they started to come out, they always had these models, don't they, on the front cover holding a sleeping baby or something. Um, You know, their eyebrows are beautiful and their hair is, you know, and the reality is if you've got a little one, especially under 12 months of age when they're not always the easiest and predictable creatures on the earth. Your eyebrows will nearly join in the middle. You'll have spew on the front. You'll have bags under your eyes. And if you do colour your hair, it's going (laughs) to need it, right? And I think it started to kind of condition us that you need to be a perfect mother. And that really is problematic because (laughs) I don't think there's any such thing as a perfect parent. And it's probably what our young people are witnessing more and more, feeling this need to be perfect and need to be performing and pleasing and perfecting everywhere we go. And I'm curious to know from you, Maggie, what do you think hasn't changed when it comes to girls? (laughs) The same things. Emotional intensity was a thing when I was a little girl. So we know that that is a bigger thing. Um, We know girls don't forget stuff. You know, and one of the stories um, that a, a couple came up to tell me about um, was that they have a little five-year-old girl and it was her fifth birthday and they, you know, bells and whistles. I don't know if they had the live unicorn, which I know is a real thing in parts of Sydney. And she got beautiful presents and she got the cake she wanted and, and she was sad. And um, it wasn't till bath time that she enlightened them that she had asked for a particular gift, wait for it, 11 months before (laughs) and it hadn't turned up on her birthday and so she was mildly pissed and the memory stuff is kind of a double-edged sword because we do remember more stuff you know we know where stuff is and we know how to get what we want we know kind of whatever stories they actually remember picture books much more you often need to read them once if it's got a message and the girl will remember it but it's a double-edged sword because you know, and that what I discovered in the research is that we are biologically wired as females um, to um, remember negative things so that we can make sure we can avoid it happening later for our own sense of safety. But we also get in ruminating loops 
So, you know, and until our prefrontal has grown and we can go, oh, don't be ridiculous, take a breath, have a cup of tea, settle down, Gretel, you know, we can coach ourselves. Without that, you know, little girls and teen girls are just drowning in those ruminating loops that there's something wrong with me. Um, and I'm in one of the survey responses was from an educator who said there's, you know, girls are getting fat shamed around three and four years of age by other girls. Well, that hurts and I guarantee that will not leave, right? And so we've got, you know, just that's that makes it tricky later and I did share a couple of the things that um, really challenged me as a girl and one of them was that, you know, elderly man telling me that I needed to be careful I didn't get bit too big for my boots, you know, and I'd written the book and it's gone out and Tracy Spicer has written a beautiful forward in the book and um, called me a national treasure and when that happened, my body was filled with exactly the same um, dread and shame that that elderly gentleman had inflicted on me when I was seven. And I had to go for a really, really long walk because it all came back that said, you're too big for your boots, you're too much, um, you know, don't accept compliments, you need to get back. Isn't that ridiculous? I'm 67 and I had a lot of therapy and it's still absolutely triggered me in in a really big way and it highlights for all of us baggy that we do feel deeply and our words have such a significant impact on our young people and also being able to build this skill of noticing when it's coming up in our own body and then not putting that on our children to try and get rid of it yeah and you know that's why parenting is such hard work isn't it and it what I did find though is that girls tend to trigger their mums more than boys do tend to. <laughs> Is that a surprise? So, I mean, you know, I, I think I've shared before that when people found I was having a third boy or a fourth boy, you know, they were, they were, you know, feeling sorry for me. You know, they were saying, you poor thing, you know, and one lady even lit candles in the local church when she heard I had my fourth son and <laughs> I nearly got bereavement cards. Um, <clears throat> and isn't that quite interesting because, you know, when when girls are starting to get a little older towards school time, you know, yeah, then we suddenly realise, but it seems like there's a magical, oh, little girls are sugar and spice and boys are all the opposite and it's all rubbish, you know, and it's those conditionings that are still happening, um, that sense that boys are tough and girls aren't, um, and it's, it's one of those challenges, I suppose, of both my books, Mothering Our Boys and this one, that, you know, we're all capable of being courageous and brave and sensitive and caring. You know, it's not a gender thing and that, you know, we may need to coach our girls into, you know, owning that courage and stretching themselves um, instead of letting others kind of put that dampener down. Oh, girls don't do that. Or you run like a girl to a boy. Like, have you seen Sam Kerr? (laughs) What? (laughs) Yes, and I love how you highlight in the book this idea of the lamb and the rooster and highlighting the temperament piece and understanding the young person in front of us and that they're different to us as educators and parents and really getting to know who they are. Oh, I think that's that was something that I'm, I'm looking at my own little granddaughters, right, because that just was so complex from the get-go. Um, and, I mean, I've always known that I was, you know, when I kind of did the temperament, I knew I'm that confident, outgoing girl who's really loud and gets up and has a go at anything and it's quite fearless. I'll take on any challenge. I love change. Um, but what I didn't recognise was that I also have what we call 
an orchid tendency. So we have roosters and lambs, so the lambs are sensitive, kind of at the other end, thoughtful, which we tend to want to put girls in that box. Um, and really what we want them is to access both, don't we? But the dandelion and the orchid influence, and when we when I was exploring that, you know, even though, um, you know, I am strong and brave and courageous, I, I have a hypersensitivity because I'm, I'm an emp- empath, so I pick up everyone's feelings around me. And as a little girl, it often drowned me. And then I didn't know what it was or what to do with it. And I'd try to fix, because if I fixed others, then I felt better about myself as well. So it means there's a volatility around emotions and they can be positive emotions. We know that there's um, (laughs) uh, parents of orchid girls who may be a rooster orchid because they are the most challenging who um, really don't want to let them know how close it is to Christmas because their enthusiasm of anticipation will exhaust you by the time it comes, right? So you can't do an advent calendar, really, because she'll wear you. She'll be getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning checking, has the day gone yet? Is it the next day yet? You know, because they have this intensity. And so helping out, what I wanted to do was, who is the child who's landed on your lap? Um, Even given all the things we know, you know, about girls over boys, um, is she that? And and that might explain why sometimes if you've got the lamb, she's not real keen at going to large social events till a little bit older, till she gets a bit braver. And forcing her might not be a good idea because it makes it even a bigger thing. And avoiding it is also not the best thing. So I think it helps us know how can we be the parent or the coach that my child needs so that I can help them be them and knowing that all of them will need us to support them to either learn to have some tact, <laughs> if we are that loud girl, um, and to be respectful if we disagree, or how do we give the quieter girls an opportunity to have a voice and to step forward and to be seen as equally, you know, valid. And what a gift we can give our young people when we step back and really notice what are their strengths? What works for them? Do they need to be at the party early before everyone arrives and see everybody arrive to have a good time instead of racing in late and there's the whole party's going and it's too overwhelming? Starting to see how we can set our young people up for success. And I love the idea about the orchid and the dandelion. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this comes from a paediatrician called um, W.T. Boyce. He's an American who'd been a paediatrician for 40 years. And what he observed was um, that there were some children who have like a biological, um, a, not so much a biological ability, it's like when you land on the planet, that when adversity happens, you just have this ability to to overcome it and navigate it without too much drama. Whereas the orchids, he said, have this hypersensitivity to adversity that can be really difficult for them to navigate and to understand. And it can flow through in all sorts of areas. So when you have that tendency plus you have um, an additional challenge of some kind as a child, whether it's a neurodivergent kind of thing going on or double whammy or you've got some delays in your language, then you can see that being an orchid is going to make that harder for you as you transition into big school and that you'll need support and help to help that happen. Whereas if you have a child in the same situation who is ADHD or on the spectrum, 
who is a dandelion, they will struggle in their own unique way with however their, you know, neurodivergence turns up. But they'll kind of cruise through it a little bit less emotional, you know, than some of the others. So it's a, it's, it's just such like a puzzle. And Meg, that was just, you know, when we, that was when I started to recognize the puzzle I was myself because I didn't realize that I had the orchid tendencies, but I also didn't realize until I was probably in my mid to late 20s that I'm also an introvert because I could be a teacher and I can deliver things. People think I'm an extrovert. So what we know from introverts is um, they can get exhausted around social situations and the only way they pick their energy up and restore themselves is by solo time, whereas extroverts fill themselves up by being with people, particularly people older. So, you know, that's another thing for us to help our little girls work out so that they can understand that because I, I just couldn't work out why as a teenager I, I avoided all the parties. I just, you could stick a pin in my eye and I'd have more fun. But I'd had no idea why. So I thought I was really a bit like weird. Isn't that funny? So until I worked that out, then it also makes sense for me that um, if I go to a really large conference um, and I present during the day, I'm actually unable to go to a dinner at the night because I've left everything on the stage and I can chat to people right up to the time I leave. And when I've left, I am like so spent that my husband likes it really because it's really quiet. Um, And I really... I can't even have the TV on for a while till I've restored, you know, my sense of self. So if we help our children identify those things at the same time as identifying their strengths, and I think what we've done in the last 20 and 30 years, Meg, is I think we've become too deficit-focused. What can I fix rather than celebrating the strengths? And I think there's a lot more strength-based programs and things out there at the moment but I think I was lucky because my dad always sort of said that he really liked my ability to um, problem solve and think things through. He loved the fact I had a lot of energy because we had to chase a lot of sheep on the farm. So I was nearly as good as a sheepdog. Isn't that interesting? Like, um, But he also was very much, when I asked him questions, he often would just re- reflect it back to me. He wasn't a teacher, he was an agronomist, and go, so what do you reckon? And then he would add to that. And I felt as an educator that was such a gift in the classroom, you know, and I, I do remember I had a year nine class once and you know, on the program we had to do ballads and I thought these kids have done ballads before. So I put them into a group and said, okay, there's three ballads. I want you to read them and can you give me a list of the characteristics of a ballad? And 20 minutes later they nailed it. So why would I bore the pants off them teaching them about a ballad, which they've had five times already, so I took it to the next level that there's a beat to iambic pentameter to uh, to ballad. So we got a really good one and we were thumping on the desk with the beat to it and we had so much fun. Um, and then I said, if you want to, you know, get it, you can write your own short, you know, stanza for a, a ballad later. But, oh, my God, and I got out of the classroom and a couple of teachers said to me, what are you doing having that much fun? And I said, we're learning about ballads. But can you see that I... I think that's a really good thing that, and I know it's about knowing about prior knowledge, but it just made sense to me that, you know, together they'd be able to nut it out and then I'll give you anything you've missed. Yes, and there's so much trust in that. There's so much trust to be able to be with young people. I think about your dad in that car He's probably thinking part of, I've got that fence to check, I've got that to do, I've got this to do, but then also allowing the space for you to talk. What a gift 
to have a space or an adult particularly to just listen. Because my dad's old school, so I never actually heard him say to me he loved me. But I still remember those trips around the cut. We had an old farm newt that we checked on the sheep and, you know, the, I loved school, oh, loved it, absolutely loved it. I would come home and as a quality time person, I would like to update my dad from the moment I got on the bus to the time I got into the ute. And I would tell him everything I learnt and everything things said and didn't. You know, like I could give you a headache. But there was one day I do remember it was something really interesting I had learnt. And so Dad actually pulled the ute up and just, you know, put it in gear and turned it off and turned to me and actually listened for another four or five minutes. And he he was so present in that moment, you know, that I've never doubted that I was not loved by my dad from that moment. And I think it's something I discover that girls often, you know, in their they will talk and give you a bit, but if you're not really listening, I'm not going to give you any more. And that sometimes those little chats, they're making sense of their day in a way that's quite different to to boys you know boys often can't remember a damn thing that happened but something might come out at bath time but girls are trying to work out all the nuances of of the classroom dynamic and the teacher and and the friendship bit and it's big it just keeps going around so somewhere are we really giving them that space because I think the world's got so much busier and if you are getting dinner prepared at the same time you know while they're sitting next to you, every now and then make sure you you really see that they see that you're watching. But as when you turn away because there's a bip on your phone, it it really says you don't care to a girl. You know you're not you're not really here. So I think it's one of the challenges of modern parenting, isn't it? That everything is happening fast, and there's noise everywhere. Like every household appliance makes a noise. I think actually my washing machine nags because it bips for about 20 minutes. I can't even turn it off. And I've had arguments in my car that uh, there is not someone on my front seat that needs a seatbelt. It's my handbag. Like (laughs) these didn't happen before. So can you see all the things that just mildly irritate us that can make it hard for us to be a conscious, present parent? Yes. It is so chaotic And also there's an invitation for us to think about where can we get pockets of connection? And that's where I love your work is that it's really realistic. You're not saying let's sit down and have an hour conversation every day. You're just saying amongst the chaos, what's possible? How can we show that we're present? I remember when I was in the classroom, I spent lots of time teaching at all girls schools and something that I used to do consciously and deliberately is when a student would come to me and if I happened to be on the laptop I would put the screen down and so that was just a sign that I'm here I'm listening and every time I did that I just saw their eyes light up just a little bit like oh she cares there's no question and you know I talk a lot about the micro connections as busy parents that when we work out you know what works for each of our kids that we give them little doses of that as often as we can because we are busy, whether it's a ruffle on the head or if it's a boy, a punch on the arm or if it's, you know, if if it's your daughter and it's just that moment that she would really like that big hug just as you come in the door because she just needs a refill from you. That might take you 20 seconds, but what it does within them, you know, is, is huge because, you know, we don't all have those moments and chats. And one of the things I encourage with girls is, 
if she does have that trouble, you'll know when she gets in the car or she gets at home, that look on her face, you know when she's troubled. So we just connect and go, look, I can see it looks like you've had a bit of a tough day. Um, do you want to have a quick chat now or should we do that just after dinner when I've got it? In other words, I'm, I'm ready. You choose which of these because sometimes they may need some time to process it themselves before they come back and have a chat. And that that becomes something that and then in that conversation, um, doesn't matter what age they are, do you just want me to listen or do you want me to help you problem solve this? Because so often we jump in with advice and gee, does that make them angry if they just want you to listen? Oh, nothing gets, um, especially an adolescent girl, more fired up when they're trying to tell you something and you're thinking, oh, I've got the solution. I've got, I've got the solution here. I saw this last week. I'll just pop it in here. And they just want us to listen. And it was interesting that at the start of the conversation, you talked about how we can really think deeply. Young girls can think about things and ruminate on things. And I've noticed that when girls get together, it becomes this group rumination that can really dig its claws in. And there's no question. And that's why in the whole friendship dynamics, every now and then we know that girls are, are trying to form alliances and it's a, it's a kind of deep biological drive. So they'll often form alliances in groups they think are going to serve them and protect them. But sometimes they get into the into the group that is really has a tendency to be the negative, the the pile on, the gossip, the awful bits. And you know they might stay because they're terrified they won't be able to find somewhere else. So it is really complex that area of have I got a friend? And I think it's good to ask that question. Um, you know, does that friend make you feel good when you're with them? you know, all of the time, some of the time or none of the time because that's a sign that, you know, and it's a big thing with females, our body sensations, um, you know, they're just so acute that we need to help them trust their instincts and trust the way they feel in situations because there is an early warning system and it's designed to keep us safe um, and that we need to let that be something they trust when you're not around to keep an eye on it. So sometimes, you know, that's, it's a biggie, but I've got an amazing one because I've spent so much time out in in nature. So, um, you know, I've got a pretty finely tuned one around snakes to start with. Um, but I also found because I wasn't distracted by lots of things, like because I didn't actually have TV on the farm till I was 15 and I'd gone to boarding school, I wasn't distracted by the visual digital world that distracts us a lot. So I don't know that the body sensations are able to kind of be heard as well because we're so entertained and there's so many things going on that the brain can get a little bit distracted but that's just a <laughs> that's just a thought i have no proof on that one either but i think that's a really important thought is about building up this self trust and noticing how does this feel what's this relationship like for me i remember a topic that came up a lot with the girls that i worked with was about how much time they spend with people. Some people literally wanted to spend all day at school, all day online, can't go to sleep because they're still texting, like this time where others are feeling like, I really do like spending time with you, but that's too much. I can resonate with this because during the uh, thousand lockdowns with a five-year-old, well, at the time it was four-year-old and two-year-old husband at home, I felt like I was a cat living with a bunch of dogs and I just wanted time and I couldn't get it <laughs> and it was just like ah um, why does everyone need so much of me but I think we have to start to become in connection with what is my body telling me and I think over the time we've conditioned women and young girls to no 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 just smile don't rock the boat 
do all the nice, be nice, make sure everybody else feels comfortable. And that's why I love in your book, bringing together this idea of letting our young people being heard. Yeah. And that's, you know, that was what concerned me, you know, with last year in 2021, of course, with not just Grace Tame and, um, you know, Brittany Higgins, but it was Chantel Contos's, you know, petition that really disturbed me that a lot of the women that gave that information were our educated women, not our most vulnerable coming from lower socioeconomic places. These are educated women who um, were being treated appallingly without a voice. And I thought, where did that voice go? And, you know, that is what it is a really big part of what I wanted in the book to know that that voice says that, no, that's not okay. Or, gee, I'm really enjoying this. So that as we look at ourselves as we go forward, do we work out the things that give me joy? Because we're always going to have the things that give us a challenge. And that when I'm a troubled teen, do I know that if I put on, you know, ABBA for half an hour, I'm going to be feeling amazing? Or do I go for a swim? Whatever, I want to know what are the things that fill my cup before I get to be a teen. And that's what the body is also telling us. So, you know, that sense of being drained, that sense of just being, you know, the head is just thumping because it's not in a good space. We know it's cortisol. We know that neurochemicals can be created in different ways. But helping our kids to plot out their own way of triggering positive neurochemicals is a huge thing, you know, and I one of the things I do recommend in terms of resilience is cultivating a sense of humour in our girls because they can be so serious, so serious. I mean, we laugh endlessly with boys because they just seem to have a fascination with body parts and noises and things that they do. But in actual fact, I think it does support them, you know, mentally. It's just later that they don't have a lot of other things to fall back on. But a girl who's got a good sense of humour who's been taught some funny, you know, one-liners and backhanders and things that make her laugh, she can lift a group friendship up. But not only that, she can move through something that's challenging her um, quicker. And I used to work in the funeral industry and I know how incredibly powerful black humour is. It's terribly disrespectful. But if you laugh, you're discharging grief and sadness just as though you do when you cry. So I think and I'm doing that with my granddaughters. I do the most ridiculous things to have them laugh. And I'm teaching them to laugh loudly. That's my revenge on my sons. I'm getting there. <laughs> I love that you're getting there. And I love that you're giving a blueprint for us to develop self-knowledge. Because as we're developing self-knowledge, our young people can understand, oh, is it a lamb, rooster, orchid, dandelion? When do I feel activated? What helps to soothe me? And that's going to be so different. I look at our two boys and what works for them is so different. It couldn't be more different if you tried what settles and what activates. And starting to have these conversations in classrooms and homes to be like, what's really working and what can you do? If things are happening, what can you do instead of feeling like we have to rush and fix and soothe all of the problems away? Oh, isn't that such a big thing too? Because that's one of the things that happens because girls' emotions are so big. You know, when I was younger, it was shut them down. You know, stop that. Stop being so emotional. Or, you know, I'll really give you something to cry about. So a lot of my generation had big feelings locked down and shut down, particularly anger. And that can cause problems later on because, of course, that means that instead of being saying something when we're angry and getting it out there, which is exactly what, you know, kind of 
express it and then, you know, there's usually something underneath the anger. Um, that means passive aggressive is often a pattern of behavior that can be so confusing <laughs> because it's not authentic either, but it's not allowing you to actually recognize what's driving your anger because there's always something underneath it. And that means that you're going to struggle with big feelings that you're not going to make sense of. You're absolutely right. That self-awareness of how things feel, what they might be, and how can I move through that by recognizing it and owning it without feeling, you know, that means girls, nice girls don't get angry. Look at the conflict last year when Grace Tame just had that dark look on her face when she was um, at the um, lodge. Now, obviously, there is a sense of statesmanship and maybe that wasn't the right place. But at the same time, why should she fake being okay when, you know, he had seriously let her down on a number of occasions? You know, I, and that's it. We've got to allow all of our children to have moments of anger because it's a normal human emotion. It's not just a male emotion. It's a normal human one, but we need to be able to understand it and know how to express it without being offensive to others. Yes, and that's quite a skill when you've been taught to not get angry but instead just seethe with resentment and do the passive-aggressive. I know when I've worked in an all-boys school, it really just made me laugh because there was this one student, Patrick, I can still see him, and I'm like, Patrick, Patrick, and you're like, oh, miss, miss, no problems. I would have said his name 50 times in the class, no problems, all good. If I had that approach when I was working in all-girls schools, that would have set me up for that student not talking to me for the rest of the year saying, she's got it in for me, she hates me, and just starting to notice like what's tolerable and how can we work within those edges. Yeah, and also I think girls have this incredible sensitivity that they feel that you've kind of someone who gets them. So with boys, we know that if the te- they feel that a teacher likes them, they just they really work hard. They try to behave well, and they just they can do amazing things in your room. They can also be wrong because they can often think you don't like them when you do like you know like it's just. But with girls, it's kind of like when they recognise um, that you are someone safe, um, it means that their their brain doesn't have to work so hard in that space to feel safe. So therefore, they've got you know more dopamine to be engaged in learning. But they will be able to do all right in that classroom. They just won't enjoy it as much. And I just still think if you haven't got joy in a classroom, then um, at some point, then the learning will always be compromised, you know, and that that connection, again, is as different as it is with boys. But you're right that they will be able to take one-on-one, I found with the girls, if I just have that quick chat with them, knelt down next to them, said, you don't seem to be having a good day, is there? So is there anything I can help you with here? Um, you know, and the first thing they'll do is go, no, I'm fine. But what they'll often do as they go to leave the classroom is I'll come up and see you at the end. Would they have come up if you hadn't done that, even though they said I'm fine? Um, maybe not. But where are those gestures, you know? And I did find, you know, the, that there were a number of girls who got really frustrated in the classroom um, for things like it being too noisy, um, and if they don't have a voice around that, so that's why I use the silent sound signal because in classroom, so if I wanted to speak, you know, I put my hand up and they could finish their sentence. And and the reason I did that was because I asked how many like being shouted at because in a robust year nine classroom, you know, that's sometimes what we had to do to be heard to get the so they could listen. So that became a hand signal that from time to time it was the girls that used it. Because as soon as you saw a hand go up, you actually would quieten down and put your hand up. 
and I didn't start it. And it was usually a girl saying it was just a bit too noisy for me. And there was this great sense of respect that, um, you know, we can learn other ways of getting our needs met, even in a group situation. We don't have to tolerate kind of things, but we can do it respectfully and we can do it with consideration for others. And like I said, I knew that I needed to um, get my boys up moving every 20 minutes. You know, they just otherwise I start walking around and what I found was you know when I explained it to the girls there were a few girls that were like me that liked it um they were absolutely on board because you know they didn't they found it restless when boys start wandering around or flicking chairs so they got it on a logical level but you know I don't think any girl went backwards by doing more brain breaks than what we what we normally do in a class with girls yeah, because we're setting up this beautiful shared language around what works for one person versus what works for another person and how can I support the me while we're supporting the we. So for people listening to this, Maggie, if you could tell them a few things about raising young girls, what would they be? Um, all right. I think probably they need to have parents that are able to emotionally coach them at times, especially in the formative years as they're beginning to make sense of the intensity of their emotions. That, you know, and you'll work that out. They'll all have different ways. We help them work out what do you do when you're flooded? Uh, what works for you? Let's go through some options. You know what I mean? I think it's really important. Um, and then the second one, I probably would say again, keep affirming to them that you are not in competition with any other little girl. No matter what the world tells you, we are not. You can't be in competition with anyone else because you're in a race of one person. What we have to help you do is be you and be, you know, the best version of you. And there are times there are going to be some things we can help you with. And other times we're just going to celebrate because you've already just got these amazing strengths. So it's always looking for those positives. And then I think it's making sure that they have a sense of um, equal worth and value that, you know, and once again, gender is fluid. It's not all girls and all boys. And there'll be times that you'll find girls more complex and more difficult, but that's the reality it is to be a girl and that what they really need down the track is hopefully um, a, a core sense of self-worth that says no matter what happens, no matter if I'm called fat, no matter if I'm called stupid or I'm in the wrong group, I absolutely know that I am loved and valued from my home base. That's what builds authentic self-worth. Self-esteem flips all over the place. But self-worth means there's nothing that you will ever do that will stop us loving you. And when you've got that at a really deep level, that really is, is just like the foundation block that will help girls grow up to be women who are happy, healthy and heard, even if sometimes they're a bit emotional. <laughs> I love that, Maggie. To wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to complete four sentences. Are you up for that? Yep. I am inspired by? At the moment, I'm incredibly inspired by the last Australian story, which was with Shanna Wah, um, the one with the alcoholism in the bush. Oh, my gosh, her story and the effect of trauma and the fact she's changing lives. I I cried. She inspired me so much. You know, I get inspired easily, but I was really inspired by that. Oh, Shanna Wan is just incredible. I remember hearing her years ago on a podcast and I've followed her ever since. And it is these courageous women that are willing to be vulnerable, to share their story so other people can sigh a big sigh of relief to like, oh, she gets it. She understands. So inspiring. When life feels hard... I go walking with my dog. 
I go straight out to nature. <laughs> Off I go. An underrated skill is? Uh, an underrated skill, listening. Yeah, I think we're all really good at talking, but I think listening. Isn't that interesting? We're on a podcast, but I do think listening's an underrated skill. <laughs> um, I am looking forward to. I'm so looking forward to getting back to WA again, to reconnecting with three of my precious little grandies over there because it's such a long way away from where I live. Um, and I'm also looking forward to when I grow up wondering what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> oh, that question. Who knows what we're going to do? We'll just keep making it up. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so interesting. Every night before we go to bed with the kids, our routine is we have the bath, we have dinner, and then we watch an episode of Bluey every night. And gosh, it makes us all giggle. And every time I giggle, I think, oh, Maggie would be happy with this. Ah. Oh. What a way to go to bed. Laughter just brings up the best endorphins. It's the, it's the closest thing you can have between two humans is, is a laugh. And seriously, I have literally done exactly the same with my granddaughters and we may have stayed up a little bit later and watched one more episode because it's just pure gold, isn't it? Celebration of, of imagination and play and the incredible role of, of loving humans in a home with, um, yeah, their kids. I love it. Make mistakes, fess up, sort it out. Love it. And this is what you give us every day, Maggie. So thank you so much for showing up and doing the work that you do so we can all feel a little bit okay and take action. And thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. I really have enjoyed this conversation. Oh, huge virtual big hug to everyone who's who's listening. And thank you, Meg, for inviting me to come along. I've loved it. Maggie really is a national treasure. To learn more about Maggie's incredible work in the world, you can visit her website, maggiedent.com. There you can find a range of resources to help parents and educators navigate the world of children and adolescents. This month, I will be giving away a copy of Maggie's fabulous new book, Girlhood. So make sure you're subscribed to the Thought of the Week to learn more. Before you go, I invite you to complete two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember, what is your pearl? And number two, the action I am going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well-being is. If you love the show, please write a review on iTunes or Spotify. It will only take a few minutes and it really helps to share the podcast with more listeners. Thank you to Amy F. for writing the following review. Love Meg's practical and grounded approach. She combines her extensive knowledge with some excellent interview subjects who really know their stuff. A perfect balance of solid research and data combined with personal experience and connection. Thanks, Meg. Thanks, Amy, for listening and taking the time to write a review. Your support means the world to me. To learn how I can help you thrive, visit openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event or make an inquiry about my game-changing workplace wellbeing program, Thrive by Design. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 40. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.